Come thou long expected Jesus. We're in our second week uh, in Advent. And what we're doing, if you haven't been with us, is we're, we're taking a Christmas hymn. Like, come thou long expected Jesus. And we're pairing it with a passage from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And we're focusing our attention then on the good news uh, that is proclaimed in the incarnation at, at Christmas. Uh, we are located in history between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. Uh, the arrival, the coming uh, of Jesus in Bethlehem uh, 2,000 years ago and his second coming where he will usher in his kingdom fully. And this is part and parcel with the good news. And so we sing even today, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, not looking to Bethlehem, but looking to the new heaven and the new earth. That's our hope at at Christmas time. Every year, uh, my wife and I pack our things and the things of our five kids and gifts we've purchased for our extended family to make a thousand mile journey home for Christmas. I'm sure many of you make a journey home for Christmas, maybe not a thousand miles, but nonetheless you do something similar. Uh, We make all kinds of preparations before we leave to head back. One of the things I always make sure we do is take down our Christmas tree before we leave because there's something utterly depressing about taking a Christmas tree down after New Year. So I don't want to come back to the Christmas tree and all that work. And so we take down our Christmas tree we put away our decorations. We, we order a hold on our mail. Many, many things, many, many preparations are made. Mostly my wife makes them. She does a great job. But these, however, aren't typically a hassle or a pain for us because as we're making these preparations, we're anticipating the joy that is before us. We're, we're anticipating our homecoming. We're anticipating seeing family and friends again. And we have a lot of expectations for the joy that is to come in Christmas. But then we arrive. Then we arrive and the reality of Christmas slowly sets in. Yeah, there's an initial celebration of seeing each other. But then other things start to settle in, like the fact that I have to usually sleep in the room right next to my mother-in-law and father-in-law, whom I love. But I'd rather not sleep in the room right next to them, especially when oftentimes it means one of my kids or many of my kids are sleeping on the floor next to me. That happens. We co-parent about 100 children together between my in-laws and my siblings. So a lot of co-parenting. That happens. And we have to work out the politics of time spent between family and friends. Everybody wants a piece of our time. It puts a a great deal of pressure on us to make sure we're satisfying their expectations for us. And to put it simply, our visions of the joy to come in Christmas are never fully met. I wonder if a few of you or even all of you don't identify with that kind of disappointment at Christmas that you have expectations for how grand and glorious and awesome it's going to be, and then you come away deflated. I'll bet I'm not alone. I'll bet most of you can identify with that. We all want more than we usually get. 
Our expectations are rarely met. And it's a human desire. It's a human hope that we have for peace at Christmas instead of conflict. For joy at Christmas instead of hardship. For freedom instead of bondage. For understanding instead of confusion. We want these things at Christmas. We want these things all year round, in fact. And yet, we don't see them in the greater world around us. And if we're being honest, we don't see them or experience them in our own lives very much. You see, we all long for more but we can't accomplish it for ourselves. We can't bring it to our own lives. But in today's uh, Christmas hymn, the one we just sang before I came up here to preach, Charles Wesley, echoing the prophetic words of Isaiah, directs our attention to the one who can satisfy these hopes, the one who can satisfy these desires. Listen to these lyrics from Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Those are massive expectations that Charles Wesley places on Jesus, that the very expectations the Bible expects of the servant Messiah. Freedom from sins. Rest from life in a fallen world. Strength and consolation in our weakness and our brokenness. There are hopes that span across the globe. There are hopes that transcend national boundaries. They are human hopes no matter where you're from. This is the joy we long for as human beings. And this is what Jesus' first and second coming are all about. Good news. Redemption, restoration, freedom, justice, and salvation. These only come in Christ. That's the message of the Bible. That is the message of Christianity. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a short passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 61, verse 1, 2, and 3, and see how they come in Christ. See how our expectations will only be met in the servant Messiah who speaks in this passage. That's our goal today. Let's look at Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1. I'll read aloud and just listen to the word of God. Isaiah shares these words of the servant Messiah. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. 
This is the word of God. Now I'm going to invite you to pray with me before we begin to dig into God's holy word. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this brief passage that we're looking at today. We thank you for the expectations which the Bible places squarely on the shoulders of the servant Messiah who speaks here. We thank you for the first advent of Christ. And we praise you for the second advent of Christ, which is to come. And we ask that you would teach us today from this passage of Scripture. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, how are we going to see the gospel and the two advents of Christ, both his humble birth and his victorious return? How are we going to see the gospel? Well, we're going to ask a couple of questions of this text, of these three verses. First, we'll ask, what's the good news the servant preaches? What's the gospel about? What is this message he preaches about? And then second, we're going to ask, who delivers the goods? Who grants all these good news promises? Who has the power? Here in this passage. What's the message about? Who has the power? Let's consider the answers to each of these two questions. What is the good news? I see the good news preached in verse 1 and verse 2 of today's text. It's gospel, good news to the poor. It's, It's healing for the brokenhearted. It's freedom for captives and prisoners. That's all in verse one. These are the first things revealed about the message, this gospel message. And as we consider this, we might wonder about those it's for. We might be concerned about those it's for. Who are the poor? Who are the brokenhearted? Who are the captives and prisoners? We might wonder if we're being excluded because we're not literally any of these things. And we're not literally poor. We're not literally brokenhearted right now we're not literally in some prison cell right now and so this does this not apply to us is this good news not for us now if if you're concerned by this allow me to comfort you there is nothing about the context of today's passage which would restrict these descriptors to those who are literally poor or literally brokenhearted or literally in some type of prison these descriptors encompass a larger view of who's in poverty, of sorrow, of slavery. This is good news for the poor who are poor, certainly, without a doubt. Also the rich who are equally poor, but maybe they just don't know it. This is gospel for the brokenhearted who mourn, and also the joyful who mourn as well. It's good news for those who are confined to an actual prison cell and those people who can go anywhere at any time yet are imprisoned by the expectations of others or owned by the very things they own. It's a big picture view of poor, brokenhearted, and imprisoned. One commentator explains it this way. I think this is helpful. Who are the poor? 
Those who are so broken by life that they have no more heart to try. Those who are so bound up in their various addictions that liberty and release are a cruel mirage. Those who think that they will never again experience the favor of the Lord. Those who think that their lives hold nothing more than ashes, sackcloth, and the fainting heaviness of despair. These are they to whom the servant Messiah shouts, good news. I wonder if you don't see yourself somewhere in that description. I wonder if you can locate an area where that describes you. I know I can look at that and I can find myself in it. I can see how I'm poor. I can see how I'm brokenhearted. I can see how I'm imprisoned. And when we are aware of our poverty and brokenheartedness and captivity, then we are aware of our need of Jesus. For the one who proclaims this good news, we know we need him when we recognize ourselves in that description. The first step to salvation is always the recognition that you need saving, that you can't save yourself, that you can't do it on your own, that nothing in this world can save you or do it for you. That is always the first step toward salvation. And when you realize that, the news in this verse sounds like very good news indeed, like something worth celebrating. I wonder what you think about when you think about celebrations. Maybe you think about birthday parties. Maybe you think about anniversaries. I also wonder, you know, what does the world think when it thinks of celebrations? We've got this awesome tool now called Google. So I Googled it, and I found a top ten list of celebrations according to somebody out there in the world. It had things like Mardi Gras in New Orleans. That's a a celebration. The running of the bulls in Pamplona. That's a celebration. Oktoberfest in Munich. That's a celebration. All of those were on the list, right? You go to those cities during those festivals and you'll see a real celebration. At least that's what was being suggested by the article. But think about those for a bit. Just those three. Think about Mardi Gras. The running of the bulls, Oktoberfest. What's being celebrated in each of those? What's being celebrated? Drinking beer? A weird parade? Not getting gored by a 2,000 pound bull with which you voluntarily decided to run through narrow, crowded streets? Is that what's being celebrated? Are those reasons, causes of celebration? Those are just excuses to party. I looked actually into some of the the genesis of those events. And yeah, sometimes at the very beginning, there was a reason for celebration, something being commemorated. But I bet not one person in this congregation knows exactly what the genesis of the celebration was. You see, it is now for us just an excuse to party. These verses in the book of Isaiah are talking about a cause for celebration. What was bad is now good. 
What was lost is now found. What was enslaved is now free. These are all reasons for celebration. Good reasons to celebrate, not mere excuses to party. And this is what's being proclaimed in Isaiah and in the Bible. It is definitely what's being proclaimed at Christmas if you're rightly celebrating Christmas. The first advent of Christ and the hope of his second advent. The taste of of salvation and the fullness of salvation to come. That's reason for celebration. If we simply approach Christmas as an opportunity to take time off from work, be with family, and eat and drink way too much, then it won't be much of a celebration in the end. And we surely will come away disappointed in the end. If, however, we approach it as our salvation begun and ultimately finished in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then we won't merely party but celebrate because Jesus Christ's person and work are a cause for celebration. It's tremendously good news. He is beautiful. His work is beautiful. And then we get to to verse 2, and we have to ask ourselves. That's all in verse 1, what we've talked about. Verse 2, though, how is it also gospel? How is it also good news? How is, quote, vengeance of our God good news? Isn't vengeance always a bad thing? Well, that depends on your perspective, doesn't it? And it depends on the one who's seeking vengeance. So just suppose that you're a robber and the police drive by. You're probably going to feel pretty uncomfortable if you're a robber and you've committed a robbery and you see the police. And you're going to feel uncomfortable also if you hear that they're close to making an arrest. It's not good news when you hear that. But if you've been robbed, then when you see the police in your neighborhood, you might look at them as a very positive thing. That might be good news to you if you feel safe. And if you hear they're close to making an arrest, to finding the criminal who's robbed you, that is definitely good news. Do you see how perspective matters? Where you're situated changes your view of things. Then justice, vengeance, so to speak, sounds pretty good. But it also depends on who's doing it. I I like the movie The Equalizer, Denzel Washington. Maybe some of you have seen that. There used to be a television show a long time ago. Some of you might remember that, but only the really old people in the congregation. I love that movie. But it's not very realistic. He goes looking to seek revenge for those who've been abused, marginalized, hurt. But you see, the only reason we find that satisfying is somehow the equalizer always gets it right. That when he goes after somebody, he gets the right person. And when he seeks vengeance, it is equal to the crime committed. And there's something satisfying about that. But the problem is, We're human beings and we're fallible and we're not always able to do that, are we? We can't accomplish those things. So it assumes an omniscience that we just don't have. 
But with God, when he brings his vengeance, we can be assured it will be just like that that we see in the movies, the Equalizer movies, right? He will get the right person. And he will pay them according to their sins. And that is good news. Perspective matters, and who's seeking vengeance matters. But vengeance can be good news. One person put it this way, it is a great source of comfort to anyone who is oppressed to know that the source of the oppression will one day get exactly what it deserves and that its power will be broken. Do you see how that's good news too? We want justice. We need justice or else we don't have good news. We got to move to our second question here. Who gives the good news? Verse 3 is where I see this. Who gives the good news? Just look at the final verse of our text. Look at what the servant Messiah says about power and who has power. He says he's been sent, verse 3, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Who grants? Who gives? Who has the power? On Wednesday, millions watched the memorial service of George H.W. Bush. I watched George W. Bush give a stirring tribute to his father. Brought tears to my eyes. I'd highly recommend it. If you haven't seen it, go back and watch it. He did well. He spoke not mainly as a former president, but as a son. And that was what was so touching about his tribute. Yet as I watched, I couldn't help but think about today's passage of Scripture. As they panned across the audience, I couldn't help but think about our frailty. About human frailty. It's probably not what most people thought when they watched that. Probably a sense of power. But I couldn't help but think of frailty. The immense sanctuary of the National Cathedral brimmed full of the most powerful men and women in the world. President Trump, former Presidents Obama, Bush, Clinton, Carter were all at that ceremony. German Chancellor Angela Merkel was there. The King and Queen of Jordan were there. Prince Charles was in attendance. The list could continue on and on and on. People with influence and power whom you've never even heard of. There. Literally the most influential people in the world. All there. And with all their power, they sat there in the face of death and shed tears and offered condolences and then went home. Silence. You know what they did there in the National Cathedral? Exactly what you would have done. They cried. They offered condolences. And then they went home. The most powerful people on earth couldn't make beauty out of ashes. 
and couldn't transform mourning into gladness. None of them had the power to make that bad news day good news. None of them. We are weak. We are needy. We are frail. Even the best of us. But in this passage of scripture in Isaiah 61, there is one who has power. One who is capable of changing your ashes of devastation into a beautiful and glorious crown of triumph. One who is able to take away your sorrow and pour gladness like oil into your life. This servant Messiah in Isaiah isn't just a preacher of gospel. I'm a preacher of gospel. Benjamin's a preacher of gospel. You all are preachers of gospel. No, he isn't merely that. He is the gospel. He has the power. He is God with us. He is the good news. Come in the flesh. You go back to the very first chapter of Isaiah. I know we're not going through the entire book, but if you went back there, you'd find that the people have turned from God and trusted and glorified humans instead. Think about that national cathedral. Placing your hopes in some of those men and women there. That's what the people had done. So God tells them, because of this sin, quote, verse 30, chapter 1 of Isaiah, you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. God tells them that faith in human power, though it seems great, immovable, sturdy, like an oak, will ultimately fail, wither, and die. It cannot make that bad news day good again. The power of human beings. I think there's a warning here for us. Who do we trust above God? Who do you trust in above God? Above Jesus Christ? Well, notice the Lord picks up the oak tree imagery here. 60 chapters later, he picks it up. Except here, it's an exceedingly positive image. In opposition to the power of man, all those who receive and trust in the power of the Messiah will, quote, verse 3, be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, praised, honored. In short, a great reversal has taken place from chapter 1 to chapter 61 of Isaiah. All those who imagine themselves to be strong like oaks will wither and die. While all those who recognize that they are withering and dying on their own will grow strong like oaks by the power of God. That's the gospel. What do you trust in? What do you trust in? Your own power? Someone else's power? Or the servant Messiah's power? Christ's power for you? Let's visit once again my Christmas in Missouri. All my great expectations of joy and cheer dashed every year. Why? Why are they dashed? 
Why the regular yearly disappointment for Jason? Why the repetitive withering of my hopes? Because at the root of those hopes, I'm placing my faith in man. I'm placing my faith in people. I've lost sight of Christ and celebrating him. Instead, I look to my wife and children to grant me lasting joy. I look to my in-laws and siblings to bring me happiness. I look to my parents and my wife's parents to give me rest. I look to my friends for the provision of my salvation. They can't do it. All the faith in them in the world won't be able to grant my salvation. I'll bet you do this also. We load expectations upon family and friends that they cannot bear. It's an unfair thing to do. I'll bet you do it too. We arrive with high expectations each Christmas and then leave having been disappointed. We wither and die over and over again, year after year, because we placed our faith in people. And it's not just at Christmas time, it's all year round. People will never satisfy our expectations. They cannot. Friends, there's only one man who can grant joy. There's only one man who can bring happiness. Only one man who can give rest. There's only one man who can provide salvation. One man who was, as Charles Wesley penned, born his people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Lord, now in us your kingdom bring. If God, through the person of Jesus Christ, doesn't bring his kingdom to reign in you, you will never have rest. No other kingdom can provide it. You will never have peace. You will never have real joy, not lasting joy. You will never find real, lasting happiness. Only one man came to provide that, and it is the person of Jesus Christ and his work on your behalf. Trust in his power. And then rightly celebrate the event of your salvation. This Christmas. Anything else you'll find disappointing. Anything else will fall short of your expectations. Only Christ came to save. We're going to get a chance to celebrate communion this morning. It's appropriate that we would do that. But let me pray to close. And just encourage you. Prepare your hearts to come to his table. Which pictures his salvation for you. We bow your heads. Lord God, we thank you for this passage of scripture so many thousands of years old. We thank you for the prophet Isaiah, but more than his prophetic word, we thank you for the servant Messiah he proclaims. We thank you for Jesus Christ. And we ask to have hearts that would rightly celebrate his first advent and celebrate the anticipation of his second advent. And we pray these things for your glory, your honor. Amen.